Welcome to Worldview, a foreign affairs podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Chris Dooley. The holiday season may be upon us, but you wouldn't know it in Catalonia, which is in the final days of one of the most contentious and extraordinary elections in the region's history. Will the result on Thursday deepen or alleviate Spain's constitutional crisis? That's a question I'll be discussing with Guy Hedgeco in a moment. It has also been a big week in South Africa, where Cyril Ramaphosa won a closely fought race to succeed Jacob Zuma as president of the ruling African National Congress. Will his victory prove to be a turning point for a party and country that appeared to be increasingly mired in corruption? Bill Corcoran, our correspondent in South Africa, will give us his view shortly. But we have Guy Hedgeco on the line now. Guy, voters go to the polls on Thursday. Uh, we don't need to rehearse the background to this election in detail, I think. Uh, we know it was called by the Spanish Prime Minister, Mariano Rajoy, after his government imposed direct rule in Catalonia. And, and that move was in response to the Catalan Parliament's direct declaration of, of independence in October. Is any clear picture emerging as to who might win this election? Well, at the moment, the, the most likely winner in terms of which side of the of the debate, if you like, um, is likely to be the, the pro-independence uh, movement with those three parties uh, which favour independence. They look more likely to win more uh, seats than the, um, the unionist side, the three parties on the unionist side. So in that sense, you could say the, the pro-independence parties uh, look like they could be heading for victory, but it looks like it would probably be quite a marginal victory. And if you look closer at uh, the individual parties, there's a possibility that the outright winner uh, on Thursday, at least in terms of votes, if not seats, might be Ciudadanos, which is the, the leading unionist party uh, in Catalonia at the moment. Now, because of the, the, the electoral system, there's a possibility that Ciudadanos might win the most votes, but not the most seats. But at the moment, Ciudadanos seems to be fighting it out with Esquerra Republicana de Catalunya, the Catalan Republican left, um, which is uh, at the moment the sort of the, the leading pro-independence party. But uh, just behind them uh, is Carlos Puigdemont's uh, party, the, you know, the deposed president, his uh, Catalan uh, Democratic Party, um, which, it, according to some polls, has been quite close behind those two front runners. But I think it would be a major surprise if Puigdemont were able to overtake them and win the most seats. Now, Puigdemont, um, he, he left for Belgium um, um, after this uh, declaration of independence and then after the, the Spanish authorities started to arrest some of the Catalan leaders. Some people kind of ridiculed him at the time, but he's actually run quite a good campaign from Brussels, hasn't he? Well, yes, and, and apparently he was very insistent once he got to Brussels and the campaign was sort of approaching. Apparently he was very insistent that he wanted to be at the centre of it. Um, and he said uh, to his sort of allies and the other independence parties that he felt that you know, if he was the, the focus of, the, uh, of the, the, the election campaign, at least for his party, they would have a much better chance of winning uh, votes and seats than if he was sort of slightly marginalized from it because he felt he could use his status as – I suppose, you know, an exiled leader, you know, being on the run from the Spanish justice system to his advantage and to the advantage of his party. Now, in this election, you know, he, he's not running, his party's not running together with the Catalan Republican left, as was the case two years ago. So things are slightly different. And we've got this slightly unusual dynamic where those two parties are kind of uh, competing with each other. They're slightly vying with each other for the same ground, trying to... Um, differentiate themselves rather. And so Puigdemont sometimes has been really quite uh, strident in his message. 
perhaps not as strident as the independence parties had been leading up to the uh, the referendum in October or that that, that failed uh, independence drive. But nonetheless, it, there's, a, there's a feeling that because he's in exile, I think it's kind of freed him up to speak his mind perhaps a bit more than if he'd been sort of under the, um, the, the, the watchful eye of the party machinery in Barcelona. Um, so, you know, for example, a few weeks ago, he even mooted the possibility of holding a referendum on Catalonia leaving the European Union. Now, that came out of nowhere and surprised people rather. And I think he then seemed to realize perhaps it wasn't a good idea and backtracked on it. And I think if he'd been in Catalonia, he wouldn't have been saying things like that. Um, but it's been an interesting campaign in that sense. And there has been a little bit of tension between those two leading independence parties um, in recent days. Um, Oriol Junqueras, who's the, the jailed leader of the, um, the Catalan Republican left, made some comments a day or two ago, kind of hinting that he felt that, Jun, uh, that, he felt that uh, Puigdemont had sort of fled in rather dishonorable circumstances and hadn't stayed to face the music. Mm, and, um, and just to clarify, Guy, for, you know, people have been following the story, but I suppose Junqueras took an opposite uh, path from Puigdemont. Puigdemont fled. Junqueras uh, went to Madrid, faced a court there, and for his troubles, he's been in prison now for the past six weeks or so. Um, yes, that's right. And, and today there's been a, a sort of wrapping up um, campaign rally um, by the... Junqueras' party, the Catalan Republican left, outside the prison where he's being held. So you know, it gives you an idea as to how kind of strange this campaign has been. But Junqueras was sort of hinting that, um, that Puigdemont perhaps should have stayed to face the music in Catalonia instead of fleeing to Belgium. And Puigdemont has, has kind of hit back. And it hasn't been a sort of all-out open uh, warfare between the two of them. But we hadn't seen that previously. We hadn't seen that over the, the, the two years when they were together uh, working to implement this independence roadmap. So there are tensions there between the main independence parties. And that's been something of a, of a novelty during this campaign. And Junqueras also in the last um, you know, day or so, he, he, he made some interesting comments to writers. When he appeared to soften his line about, about separatism and he said, uh, you know, there's a quote there, I can assure you that we are Democrats before we are separatists and that the aim of gaining independence does not always justify the means. So he seems to be possibly adopting a slightly softer line as well towards the independence than Puigdemont. Is that correct? Yes. I mean, sometimes it's been hard to tell, hard to see the difference between the two, um, because traditionally, you know, um, uh, Junqueras' party, the Catalan Republican left, has been the sort of the, the reference point for for Catalan uh, separatism, really, for, for decades. I'm um, going back to the beginning of the early 20th century. You know, it's uh, it's been um, the party of um, of Catalan uh, sovereignism. And so it's unusual to see this situation whereby the Catalan Republican left, which is sort of the classic party um, that, that's advocated independence for, for decades um, uh, in Catalonia, is sort of at times being outflanked by uh, Carlos Puigdemont's rather more conservative party, um, the um, the, Europe, the Democratic uh, Catalan Party. So... It's been an unusual um, dynamic in that sense. Um, Puigdemont at times has made this more strident um, comments. And I think what you're seeing from, you know, from Junqueras, perhaps there's an, an acknowledgement there that the way that uh, the independence movement tried to implement that independence drive in the autumn uh, was not the right way. It, fa it clearly failed because we don't have an independent Catalan Republic 
right now, despite that um, sort of unilateral statement that was made by the, the parliament at the end of October. Um, and I think there's an acknowledgement that they made mistakes and that perhaps next time round, even though they still want independence, they have to move towards it in a more, as they put it, bilateral way. And so Junquera certainly has been um, a little bit softer in his uh, message regarding independence. And I think there's also an acknowledgement that they have ignored so many other issues over the last couple of years that, that Catalan politics has been up, utterly dominated by the independence issue. Um, and so other social issues, housing, education, um, healthcare, and so on, have been relatively ignored um, and that perhaps many voters are still interested in those issues and want to hear about them on the campaign trail. And um, on the unionist side, then, Guy, you mentioned there at the, at the beginning the performance of Ciudadanos uh, or Citizens Party. Um, it's a centrist or maybe right of centre party, depending on your perspective. The, its leader, uh, Inés Aramada, she, she's emerged kind of as one of the kind of major figures of this campaign. Isn't that right? Yes, absolutely. I mean, she is uh, only 36 years old. She doesn't even come from Catalonia, which is interesting. She's from Jerez de la Frontera down in Andalusia. Um, and she moved to Catalonia to, to, to study uh, there and you know, had to learn the language and uh, joined Ciudadanos and moved up very fast through the party. And she's been a, a great success. Now, part of that success seems to be the fact that uh, not so much down to her merits, but down to the, the fact that Ciudadanos is so stridently anti-independence in its position. It was created as a party solely in Catalonia originally to oppose um, the Catalan nationalism. And then it went um, nationwide in 2014 with quite a, a bit of success. Now, as this um, Catalan situation, as the crisis has been raging and kind of getting out of hand in recent months, that has really benefited Ciudadanos. Um, now, that's not to say that Arimadas hasn't been an effective candidate. She, she absolutely has. And I think she's been much more effective than for example, uh, also in the unionist camp, the, um, the the popular party's candidate, Xavier Garcia Albiol, the, the candidate of Prime Minister Rajoy, he really um, has struggled in this campaign to get across a clear message and to come across as uh, positive and, and with a vision of, of Catalonia. So Arimadas has very much put him in the shade, um, come across as a much younger um, politician with, with perhaps with more new ideas. And has benefited a great deal from um, the, the the polarization, I think, that we've seen, because she's been very, very stridently anti, um, anti-nationalist, anti-independence, and has made no secret of the fact that Ciudadanos wants to bring an end to the idea of um, of pro-independence politics in Catalonia. They think it, it's it's a negative thing for that to be part of the the political agenda. And if Ciudadanos, um, well, it probably will emerge as the biggest unionist party, but if, say, the unionist camp was to emerge with more seats, is it possible she could be the next president? Or it's looking, Go ahead, sorry, Guy. It, it's looking very unlikely. I mean, it's a strange one because she might well win. She, certainly she might get the most votes, not necessarily the most seats. But there seems to be this, this feeling that it's going to be very difficult for her to form a government. Um, and... That's just because of the situation Ciudadanos is in um, on the political spectrum. It, it's uh, opposed to the Catalan nationalism. So clearly, if uh, she were trying to form a government, she wouldn't get any support from the three nationalist parties. And even on the unionist side, um, she it looks like she might struggle to get the support of the socialists, who I think see Ciudadanos as 
too far to the right on certain issues. Um, and then you have the, um, the, the what they call the communes, the, uh, the the party or the coalition, which is sort of linked to Podemos, sort of leftist coalition. And they certainly are, are pretty suspicious of Ciudadanos because of their stance, not just on the, the Catalan issue, but on other social issues and economic issues. So she may end up winning, but she she would be a pretty solitary winner um, at the end of that, even if she does win. So I, I don't think we're going to see a President Arimadas at least this time round. Right. And is it possible that the gains that Ciudadanos might make in Catalonia will also kind of spill over into the rest of Spain? I mean, is it becoming a, an increasing threat to the um, popular party's position in general in Spain? Well, there is certainly a possibility that will happen. And this election is the ideal springboard for Ciudadanos to uh, make that leap uh, to national politics, well, they've already made the leap, but to, to really translate the success they're having in Catalonia um, nationwide. Now, they've been threatening to do that for quite some time. And in 2014, when they first went nationwide, uh, there was talk that they might possibly give the, the the popular party of Mariano Rajoy a run for his money in the, in the general election in 2015. Um, they came in quite a disappointing uh, fourth in that election. Um, I think perhaps they failed to manage their ex- expectations sufficiently. Um, but there's a feeling that this time round, the Catalan crisis is helping them. Um, it's helping them not just in Catalonia, it's helping them across Spain. You just have to look out the window in a city like Madrid or any, you know most other cities and you'll see Spanish flags are out on people's balconies everywhere you look. Now that, that's very unusual. That's a real novelty. It's something which has just started happening in the last few months. And it reflects this idea of a kind of renewed Spanish nationalism. And I think Ciudadanos have been able to channel that, not just in Catalonia, but in the rest of Spain. So possibly they might be able to threaten Mariano Rajoy and his party um, on a national level. Um, and that would certainly be a, a major achievement for them. And Guy, I'm not going to ask you to predict the, uh, the outcome of the election because, as you said, it's, it's so tight. But what are the potential scenarios you think might emerge um, come the end of this week after this election takes place? Well, there's a, quite a likelihood we'll see a, uh, a pro-independence victory, but falling short of a majority. Um, and if that is the case, I think we'll see a lot of negotiations and talks, uh, probably quite a bit of paralysis. Um, another, another alternative might be um, a, a, a unionist victory, um, you know, victory for Arimadas, and they might end up getting more, more seats. But again, if they don't get a majority, then it will see these lengthy negotiations and talks that could go on for a long time. Um, and if either of those... Uh, scenarios uh, pans out, then I think there's a good chance we might not even see a government formed. Uh, We might see a repeat of these elections a few months down the line. And and nobody wants that clearly because this election was presented by Mariano Rajoy as the solution to this crisis. Um, If there's a stalemate, it's not going to be that. Now, there is a small chance that the pro-independence parties do get a majority. It would be a very narrow majority, I think, according to polls, if they did get it. But that would be a major achievement for them, um, and it would certainly uh, avoid the need for kind of lengthy negotiations and a possible paralysis. Uh, it would be extremely bad news for the central government in Madrid, bad news for the unionists. Um, I think those are some of the most likely outcomes. The, the fourth would be that um, the the communists, those those uh, the, the leftist coalition. Um, ends up playing a key role and there's some kind of 
leftist government, which is not uh, fully pro-independence, but has some input, for example, from the Catalan Republican left. But the Catalan Republican left agrees not to push ahead with a with a pro-independence roadmap, but rather they focus on uh, on social issues and other issues like that. That could be an alternative uh, scenario to all of this. Okay, when will the result be known, by the way, guy? Well, we'll know uh, quite late on Thursday night. Um, that's no- normally when we tend to find out results in, in Catalonia. I think, Cleve, um, by Friday morning, it will be uh, absolutely crystal clear um, what, what is happening or in the early hours of, of Friday morning. Um, that's one thing, obviously, but then the negotiations will begin probably almost immediately, and that, those could be um, much more drawn out. Okay, and Guy, you'll be reporting as usual for us from Barcelona. Thanks for that today. Now to South Africa. Comrade Ngosazana Damini Zuma received 2261 votes, and Comrade Cyril Ramaphosa received 2440 votes. Where the ruling African National Congress has elected a new president, Cyril Ramaphosa. He will take over that role from South Africa's president, Jacob Zuma, after a narrow victory in the ANC leadership election over Nkosazama Dlamini Zuma. She's a former cabinet minister and Zuma's ex wife. Bill Corcoran is in Cape Town. Bill, you noted on IrishTimes.com today that this leadership election was being described as nothing less than a battle for the heart and soul of the ANC. Why was so much considered to be at stake here? Well, the two main candidates who vied for the leadership to take over from Jacob Zuma, uh, Cyril Ramaphosa and Nkosana Glimini Zuma, they come from very, very different ideological backgrounds. Uh, Ramaphosa is a pro-business uh, gentleman. Um, he has a long history in the ANC, but he left the party to pursue business interests and became a, a billionaire businessman and only returned to active politics in 2012. Uh, Nkosa Glimini Zuma uh, has been in the ANC since the struggle period. She has served as a minister under in every government since 1994. She espouses a more radical approach to change in the economy uh, and has aligned herself with her ex-husband's support base, which uh, has tainted her image somewhat because uh, they are viewed as quite corrupt. Ramaphosa, on the other hand, has promised to fight corruption, and especially uh, those uh, corrupt acts linked to people who are involving themselves with a business family called the Guptas, who her um, who Jacob Zuma has had links to. So they it was a very bitter uh, fight, and the, the at the end of the day, it tore it really did nearly tear the ANC apart. The margin of victory was only 179 votes out of uh, I think it was 4,708 delegates who voted. As you just outlined there, his, his win then is perceived as a defeat for, for Jacob Zuma, but that's not the full picture, is it? Because some of Zuma's associates uh, did get elected to senior positions. Yes, uh, the, the, the smile on uh, Cyril's face lasted um, only a couple of minutes after he was announced the winner. You could actually see it drop once the other top five leadership positions uh, were announced. Of the other top five leadership positions, three of those were won by allies of uh, Jacob Zuma. That was um, uh, the Deputy General Secretary Jesse Durant, uh, the Secretary General Ace Magashula, and the new Deputy President David Mabuza. 
The latter two uh, are particularly worrying because they have a, a number of corruption allegations hanging over them. Um, uh, Magashula has had links has links to the Gupta family. His sons are actually still employed by the Gupta family. So the chances of Ramaphosa being able to push through his hard t- take on fighting corruption would be very difficult uh, given the three people um, that I've just mentioned. So effectively, the top six is now split directly down the middle. So what that does, it makes the top decision-making body in the ANC, the National Executive Committee, that becomes even more important than it normally is. Uh, There is a a, a school of thought that uh, Ramaphosa will want to try and recall Jacob Zuma from the South African presidency early next year to give the party um, a chance to run in uh, to 2019 general election uh, without somebody as tainted as Zuma hanging around. Um, that will become far more difficult to do with the three um, people that I've just mentioned that are in the top six, but is actually the job of the National Executive Committee to recall the president. Um, so that hasn't been decided yet. They're still um, uh, voting on the top. There's 80 people in the NEC and they're still voting on those um, t- uh, positions. So we won't see wh- where the balance of power in the NEC lies on f- until a few days' time. Um, so um, you've anticipated there, Bill, a couple of things I was going to ask you about and maybe just to look at them in more detail. So just to explain, um, Zuma, as, as things stand, is due to stay in, in power as president until until an election in 2019. What is the likelihood now from seeing out that full term? Is it that's, that's, that's really all to play for then, really, is it over the next uh, short, short period? A lot of um, observers are saying that he will be doing the, the ANC and himself a disservice if he doesn't recall Zuma um, as early as January next year, some people are saying, um, it's only 14 months to the general election and the party has been losing support rapidly over the last couple of elections. And there are predictions that uh, it will lose its its majority um, coming up to 2019. The only chance that they have of saving that is to be seen to be tough on corruption and be seen to be introducing new policies that um, uplift the economy. To do that effectively, they would have to get rid of Zuma. So it does seem to be one of the the, the major positive options that he could follow if he wants to ensure that he has a good chance himself of becoming South Africa's next president. And how would Zuma be recalled, Bill? When you use the word recalled, but is it a would would go back to is it an ANC decision, uh, party delegates? Um, who has the power actually to end Zuma's term early? Well, it's the, it's the ANC's top decision-making body, it's the National Executive Committee. That's comprised of 80 members, and they have to, uh, a majority of those have to want to have the president recalled. Uh, he can refuse the call, and then what happens then is the decision transfers over to parliament, and there would have to be a vote of no confidence or impeachment proceedings. It is unlikely that it would go that far because if Zuma gets impeached, then he loses all the benefits he gets as a as an ex-president, which would do like um, free flights on SAA, security, a very large pension. So it's unlikely he would uh, allow it go that far. Um, impeachment requires 75% of parliamentarians to vote for it. 
But uh, you can be sure the opposition benches, which amount to about 150 seats of the 400 seats in Parliament, would certainly um, uh, vote for it. And if you can get enough of the um, ANC MPs to vote for it, then you might reach 75%. But that's pretty much the state of affairs and how it would work out. So ultimately, Bill, politically, will it come down to whether the ANC is now willing to rally behind uh, Ramaphosa as its new leader? As you say, the vote was very divided. It was very close. Some of Zuma's uh, candidates got elected. Um, so what are the chances now that the party will actually put this sort of, it's obviously split down the middle. Will it now rally behind Ramaphosa or are these divisions set to continue? Well, that's the big question. Um Ramaphosa is known as a very smart negotiator. He was the one appointed by Nelson Mandela to negotiate with the apartheid regime at the end of the 90s, and he did so successfully. He is a former lawyer. He he brought the constitution. He was one of the men who put the constitution together. So he's a very clever man, and he's meant to be very personable, but at the same time able to get what he wants. So. I wouldn't bet against him being able to sway a majority of the NEC to follow his wishes, nor would I bet against them swaying uh, Zuma's current allies in the top six, because the argument he will surely put to them is that if they lose the general elections in 2019, then none of these guys are going to gain the power that they, 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 they want to achieve. So these guys will have to put their either their loyalty to Zuma or their loyalty to themselves um, uh, to the test. Bill, the, the Zuma years really have become become a byword in South Africa for corruption. And now the ANC really is now associated with you know very deep levels of corruption, as is the South African state itself. Do you think Ramaphosa has the, uh, will have the authority and has the wherewithal to change all of that and put South Africa onto a new path? It's something that the, the people of South Africa hope will happen. Um, he is known as a, a strong negotiator and he's 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 looked up to um extremely uh, uh well by most people in the country um one of the things that might stand against him in relation to that is he was very quiet in um so he's been uh jacob zuma's deputy since 2012 and for uh, the first few years of that, he made no mention or, or talk of uh, fighting corruption. Maybe he was just keeping his head down and playing for time until it came closer to his chance to actually win the presidency. In the last few weeks, he has talked an awful lot more about corruption, or even the last few months. And he has used it as one of the central platforms for his campaign. So if he doesn't tackle corruption in a significant way, it will look really bad for him running into the um, 29 19 elections. So it's really for his own um, future, he really needs to follow through on that. And finally, Bill, just to look at the wider picture, maybe one of the structural problems as some people might see it with South African politics is that the ANC is this, you know, all dominating, um, all very dominant force and that, uh, you know, supporters of the ANC are very reluctant to vote for another party. But at some point, I suppose, if South Africa is to have a proper functioning democracy, it needs a, a viable opposition, doesn't it? Do you think that's likely to happen any times in the foreseeable future? Well, if, if you'd asked me that question last week, I would have said that uh, if in Kwasi Zuma had won the president election, that you would have had a very strong chance of seeing um, an opposition party or a number of opposition parties in coalition um, taking the general elections in 2019. Now that Ramaphosa has won the election, there is still a strong chance that um, the ANC could stay in power in 2019, but um, it also will might have to get involved in coalition politics. So um, 
coalition politics does seem to be the order of the day in the short term. I do think that for an opposition party to achieve full control um, and win an election on its own with an, a, a, an absolute majority, it would have to, we'll have to wait for a few more years. The parties, they need to develop more, they need to get out into the different provinces, get their footprint larger and, and get more support. The, the main opposition, the DA, is still seen predominantly as a, as a, a sort of a white uh, middle class party. South Africa is still predominantly a black poor country. So the chances of them getting enough support in enough promises to carry the day on their own still is, is slim at the moment. Okay, Bill, thanks for that. That's all for this week. For more on these and other stories, go to irishtimes.com. We'll have a Worldview special next week when some of our correspondents from around the world will be dropping into the studio here for a look back at what was an extraordinary year on many fronts. In the meantime, wish you all a happy Christmas. Thanks for listening and goodbye for now.